You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Echoes from the Past, Pictures of the Future, Episode 11, with Daniel Pell. Good evening and welcome to our series Echoes from the Past and Pictures of the Future. We are excited and thrilled to launch into our 11th presentation tonight and we are coming a little bit towards the end. We still have uh, four presentations left. We have tonight, uh, tomorrow night and then two on Sunday night. And so tonight's presentation is entitled Revelations, Two Witnesses and the Key to Overcome. And the chapters that we'll be studying in particular are chapters 11 and 12 from the book of Revelation. And so before we get into our studies, let us have a word of prayer and uh, invite God's Spirit to be our guide and our teacher tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come before you. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word again. We pray that you will bless this study, that you will enrich our understanding from the book of Revelation. And Lord, help us to understand that it's not only reading of the book that gives us a blessing, but also a hearing and an applying of these words. And we thank you for the blessing that you have in store for us as we seek to apply these words in our lives. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we turn our attention to Revelation chapter 11. And you can, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Revelation chapter 11. We'll have, again, some of the verses on the screen as well. But it's always a blessing to be able to follow along in your Bibles as well. Revelation chapter 11, and take notice of verse 3 to verse 6, which talks about the two witnesses of Revelation. And maybe you've heard about these two witnesses, of your, or maybe you have heard some uh, explanation as to what these two witnesses could be. Well, we're going to investigate tonight these two witnesses, and we're going to do some scriptural comparisons to see if we can understand and grasp what the two witnesses of Revelation, who they are, what they are, and what they mean for us living today. So let's start with the um, uh, description of the two witnesses here in Revelation chapter 11, and I'll be reading from verse 3 to verse 6, verse 3 to verse 6. And the Bible says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds uh, from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire." Quite a graphic description here of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. If you take note of the description, you will note that it implies or it applies to um, stories that we are again familiar with from the Old Testament. And let's back up here a little bit. It describes that these two witnesses have power to do what? To shut heaven. 
powers to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And then it goes on and it says that they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. Now, when you think about these events, um, no rain falling because of a prophecy that has been given. Uh, when you think about water being turned into blood because of the words of, of, of some prophet or some being, uh, you think about plagues falling. Are there some stories in the Old Testament could come to your mind when you read these description, the description of the two witnesses here in Revelation chapter 11? And so we have here a prophecy regarding the two witnesses, and immediately we are reminded of these stories, these echoes from the past, one of them being Elijah that prophesied that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the days of his prophecy. But we also read about the two witnesses that had power to turn water into blood. Well, you might be reminded of the story of Moses. Now, these two individuals, Elijah and Moses, are somewhat special individuals in Scripture. And for one particular reason, and that is that both of them um, are, with, uh, are with God in heaven right now. Now, according to the Scripture, um, when a person dies, they rest in the grave until Christ comes the second time. We looked at some of these Scriptures earlier. And when Jesus comes the second time, there will be this mighty grand resurrection, and then we will meet the Lord in the air. But these two individuals, Moses and Elijah, are already in heaven. And you might remember the story, Moses died and was resurrected. And Elijah, he, he was translated in this fiery chariot. And so we have these two individuals that meet with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's a story you will find in the Gospels. You find it there in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, in Mark chapter 9, you find it as well. An incredible story of these two individuals meeting with Jesus. In the book of Revelation, we have a description of the two witnesses that very much reminds us of the work that God did through these particular individuals in the times that a past. And so we again have the echoes of the past and we have the pictures of the future. We continually need to go back to the stories to understand the future that God has in store for us and the prophecies that he has graciously given us. Now let us continue here in Revelation chapter 11. It says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So it describes the two witnesses as two olive trees and then as two lampstands. Now, in the book of Zechariah, and again, we're going back to the echo of the past in order to understand this prophecy. In the book of Zechariah, in chapter 4, a vision appears to this prophet. And take notice of the description as he writes down what he is seeing, what he is beholding. Zechariah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says... Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Very interesting language, very similar to Revelation. Two olive trees, there we have the olive trees are by it, one on the right bowl, one on the right of the bowl, and the other on its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? 
Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is, what does it say? The word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now, the word of the Lord is um, illustrated, the word of the Lord is pictured by two olive trees, two lampstands, and it is the Spirit of God that works through the word, just like the olive, tre olive trees produce an oil, and oil in the Bible is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And it is the spirit that works through the word that really has the power to accomplish that which the word says. Uh, think about it. Moses and Elijah in and of themselves did not have the power to stop, rain, to stop uh, rain from falling upon the earth in the days of their prophecy. It was not the power of Elijah that stopped that rain. It was not the power of Moses that turned the water into blood. But it was the power of the word of God, right? It was the word of God that was being spoken through them. It was the Holy Spirit that was working through them in their lives to achieve God's plan and his purpose. So going back now, and, and, and this is another powerful verse, uh, Psalms chapter 119 and, and, and verse 105. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So just like the lampstands are a symbol of the word of God, so the word of God in and of itself is a light for our path. It shows us the way to go. It gives us direction in life. It, it gives us um, an understanding of where we are in the scope of time. Now, Revelation chapter 11 deals with a prophecy regarding the two witnesses. And it's not just a prophecy um, about Moses and Elijah. As a matter of fact, Moses and Elijah are only types of the word of God. And so the prophecy is about the word of God and the power of the word of God, but also how the word of God has been covered up by the traditions and opinions and ways of man throughout history. Now, I want you to take notice of how the prophecy continues. We back a little bit up to verse 3 here, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3. It says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, when you hear that period of 1,260 days, that should ring a bell by now because during our studies and presentations, we have looked at this period quite a number of times. Um, as a matter of fact, this prophecy is mentioned seven times in both the books of Daniel and Revelation. So it is a, it is a prophecy that is um, of great importance to understand, and we have been looking at it, and it is, of course, that prophecy that pictures the dark ages from 538 A.D. to 1798 A.D., the time of papal oppression, which is a power that is um, unmasked and identified in a very clear way, both in the books of Daniel and the books of Revelation. Uh, there is no doubt when you study the book of Daniel in depth and the book of Revelation in depth, you will not come around the fact that there is a, a, a power that is exposed there, a power that is unmasked there, that has been active in history and is active today to thwart our attention from the clear teachings of God's word. It is a system that has set itself between God and man. It is a system that has sought to um, lower the standards of truth and exalt the traditions of man. 
And so, in essence, it is the Antichrist power. And the Antichrist is not only in opposition to the teachings of Christ, but it stands in the very place of Christ. And what you will see in the books of Daniel and Revelation is over and over again this time period that is mentioned that this power ruled during the Dark Ages or during the, um, this historic period from 538 to 1798 AD. Now, during this time, the two witnesses or the Word of God is, according to the scripture, if we back up here, is clothed in sackcloth. It's clothed in sackcloth. Now, what does that expression mean? Well, again, we have to go to the echoes of the past to understand that. It was a symbol or a sign that they were grieving. They were mourning. Now, the word of God, the two witnesses, is in a state of mourning, in a state of sorrow. Why? Because the traditions of man have been exalted above the word of God during this time period of papal supremacy, of papal oppression during the Dark Ages, the 1260 years. So it is a, an amazing prophecy here of what was going on during that time. And yet, take note that they would continue to prophesy during this period. The Word of God cannot be chained down. The Word of God cannot be hidden. It is a light. It is a lamp. And it will continue to shine through those that will remain faithful even in the most darkest periods of earth's history. And this we have seen as we look at the Reformation and how men stood up for the truth and proclaimed the Word of God despite of difficulties and often even threats of losing their life. Now, as we come to verse 7 of Revelation chapter 11, I want you to take notice of how the prophecy now um, continues regarding the two witnesses. And it brings us here to some events that happened more towards the end of this 1260 period or towards the end of the Dark Ages. There was a new attack that was launched on the Word of God and it is described there in Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 to verse 10. Verse 7 to verse 10. It says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, what is going on here? There is a new attack launched against the word of God revealed here in the book of Revelation. And this attack, where does it come from? Well, according to verse 7, there is a beast, and we have already identified what a beast represents. I believe we have seen that numerous times in the book of Daniel and also in the book of Revelation. A beast represents a kingdom or a nation or a power. The Bible identifies that for us. So there's a beast. There's another power coming on the scene. And where does it come from? Many of the beasts that we have studied have come out of the sea. But this beast does not come out of the sea. According to the Bible, it comes out of the bottomless pit. Now, the word bottomless pit comes from the word obesos. And you find it all the way back in the book of Genesis when it talks about the world before it was uh, before God spoke and started to create 
And the first thing that God created was light. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. But before God created light, before anything was created, it says that the world was without form and void. It was a state of abyssus. Now, if there is a nation, a beast, that comes up on the scene in Revelation chapter 11, that comes from the bottomless pit, that says something about that nation. It must be a nation that denies the very power of God's word, that denies the very creative power of God's word. Now, when you look at the scope of history here, and we come towards the end of the 1260 years, towards the end of papal oppression and supremacy, we see that there was a nation, and that nation was the nation of France, that denied the very existence of God. They started making war on the Bible and on the teachings of truth because in many ways and they had become so sick and tired of papalism of the papal powers that they now started a revolution known as the French Revolution against everything that had to go had to do with God and his word it was a very sad chapter in history now take notice that even the Bible here in Revelation chapter 11, um, gives us a, a description of what, um, what, what went on in France or, or what was the characteristics of this revolution. Uh, tells us in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the streets. And remember the bodies here talking about the two witnesses. In other words, the Bible was under attack. We're looking here at symbolic language in the book of Revelation. Their dead bodies will lie in the great street, in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, again, we, we must use the principle here of the echoes of the past, are the pictures of the future. And so we go back and we look at Sodom and we look at Egypt and we learn about these stories in the past and the characteristics of what happened there that characterizes now this nation that is now opposing God at the time period that we are looking at here in Revelation chapter 11. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the story of Sodom, you'll remember that Sodom was a city of licentiousness. It was a city of moral degradation. It was a city in which everything was, was, was you know, allowed and uh, to the very darkest sins that you could imagine. Now, one of God's people was found in that city, and that was Lot and his family. And you might remember the story of how Abram, his cousin, pleads on behalf of Lot. And so um, angels are sent into that city to take Lot out of that city and the angels say, don't look back. And as they are fleeing across the plains there, uh, the wife of Lot turns around and she becomes a pillar of salt. And the very next moment, fire comes down from heaven and great destruction comes upon Sodom. These were the judgments of God. The cup of iniquity was full. Now, Sodom, with its licentiousness and the deep, deep and dark sins of Sodom, were now manifest in this nation during the French Revolution because what happens when you do away with the Word of God? What happens when you remove that which is light? God, the first thing that God said was, let there be light. But if you have a bottomless pit... In Abyssos, you have no light. And when you have no light, there is darkness. Darkness leading to the most degradating sins that you can possibly imagine. And sad enough, there are many nations that are walking in the footsteps of what France did during the revolution back there in the 1700s. They are denying the existence of God. 
We see it even in the schools today where evolution is being taught. And we look at the ways in which man is trying to remove God out of everything, out of the family, out of the school, out of this, out of that, so that what do you remain with? Utter darkness. Now, not only was Sodom an echo or a story that pictured France during that time, but also Egypt, according to uh, the text, Egypt was another echo or another story that illustrated a little bit or taught us a little bit about what the days were like during the French Revolution. Listen to what the Bible says about Egypt. Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2, when Moses pleaded for his people to be released, Pharaoh answered in the following way. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. He said, I do not know the Lord. A denial of the existence of God. That's exactly what was going on in France at that time. Now, there's a time period or a time prophecy that is given us in Revelation chapter 11 as well. In verse 9 and 10, it says, Then these, those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies, the bodies of the two witnesses, the word of God. It says, Three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So there will be a period of three and a half days in which there is great rejoicing because the two witnesses, the word of God, is lying there dead on the street. Now, the word of God was significantly under attack during the French Revolution. And when you come to the end of the French Revolution, particularly the three and a half years lasting from 1793 to 1797, it was a time in which France made war on everything that had to do with God. Uh, listen to this quotation that I, hear, that I have here. It, it's from um, the book Life of Napoleon, written by Sir William Scott. And he says, the world for the first time heard an assembly of men born and educated in civilization and assuming the right to govern one of the finest of the European nations, uplift their united voice to deny the solemn truth which man's soul receives and renounce unanimously the belief and worship of a deity. Now, could something like that repeat in our days? Are we seeing nations that are rejecting the very existence of God, renouncing unanimously the belief and worship of a deity? Absolutely. Well, this incredible, shocking account in the pages of history really illustrates what happens when God's moral standards are fully denied, when the light is covered up by the traditions and opinions of man. Now, during the, uh, during the revolution, there was such a state of moral debasement and corruption that baptisms were even forbidden during those days. Um, on gravestones, they would write a forever sleep. And marriage vows were reduced to civil contracts between two individuals. Does that sound familiar? And crime flourished in those dark years, and Bibles were publicly burnt. And something else that they did is that they changed the seven-day week into a ten-day week. Now, when you think about it, where does the seven-day week come from? 
There's only one place that the seven-day week, week comes from, and that's from the Word of God. You know, you can, you can astronomically explain why we have a day, because a day um, is, is, is the world rotating upon its axis, right? Now, you can, uh, you can also explain why we have a year, because it's the rotation of the earth around the sun, right? You can explain why we have months based on the lunar cycle, the moon, but can you explain why we have a week? No there's, no, there's no reason to have a week other than creation story from Scripture. So what does this nation of France do? They're trying to twist everything around, and so they make a 10-day week. And the 10th day was dedicated to, blasphemy, to, to blaspheme God, to blas blaspheme any deity. Now, there's a great book that I can recommend, and that's the book Great Controversy, one of the, one of the books that changed my life, actually. And in that book, it talks about the French Revolution. And it makes this incredible observation. Listen to this, found on page 220. It says, It was popery that had begun the work which atheism was completing. So, remember, during the 1260 years of papal oppression of papal supremacy, of a unity between church and state, which led the people into utter, utter uh, hopelessness because they could only relate to a clergy that taught in Latin. There was no access to the Word of God. There was a lot of superstition with believing that their, their loved ones were in purgatory, and if they didn't pay the church their money, they would continue to burn forever and ever and ever. All these teachings created by Rome itself to uh, enlarge its influence upon the people was now being put away, and it was, so, it, it was so disgusting to the people that they threw everything out of the door, everything to do with God. So what popery had done is misrepresent the character of God so grossly that people didn't want to have anything to do with God at all. Now, you know, in my travels uh, as an evangelist, um, I've met a lot of people, and as a speaker, I've met a lot of people in different countries that uh, will, uh, will tell me in personal conversations that they have a very hard time um, relating to God as a loving God, uh, maybe because of their upbringing or because of their past or because of certain teachings that they have believed, because there are teachings that are, that are being taught in Christianity today that misrepresent the character of God and that cause people to turn away from Him. And this is what happened here in the French Revolution, but it's even happening today as well. More than anything else do we need... Uh, New picture of God, a biblical picture of God. This is the revelation that he gives of himself in Scripture. And we need to put the character of God on display so that we can be turned to a God that loves, a God that cares, a God that has a, such a system of truth revealed in his word that is absolutely mind-blowing, so beautiful, so compelling, and so utterly transformational that we cannot even start to understand unless we really go there and experience it ourselves. God has a plan, he has a very special purpose, and yet the papacy and other false systems of worship have obstructed that and have uh, stood in between what God has in store for his people. What popery began, atheism was now completing. Another quote from the same book, Great Controversy, page 275, it says, After France had renounced the worship of the living God, the high and, holy, as the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, 
It was only a little time till she descended to degrading idolatry by the worship of the goddess of reason in the person of a profligate woman. And that's exactly what happened. They started worshiping this deity that they had set up themselves. Now, when you start worshiping reason, it's not long before you end up in the most degrading sins and a state of Sodom which is also the state where um, this nation, France, ended. Now, praise God that something happened, though, and in this prophecy it is revealed that there was an understanding after a while that by forsaking the principles of truth and removing the foundation of virtue and morality, there is only, you know, there's only a bottomless pit that is left. And take notice what happens here in Revelation chapter 11 as this nation of France started reaping the harvest um, of a denial of God's word. They had to come to the understanding. They had to come to the um, recognition that there was a necessity of faith in God as the foundation of any nation that would be a virtuous nation. Take notice of these words here in verse 11 and 12. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them talking about the two witnesses, the word of God, they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here and they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. So here we have the ascension of the two witnesses which really reminds us of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died and his enemies thought that it was all over, it was all done. And yet then on the first day of the week, the stone was rolled away and Jesus rose and he ascended to his father. And so it was that after these three and a half years of the French Revolution, they came to the end of that time and the people started, they had to acknowledge that removing the, the word of God really, they had, they had, seen the harvests, they had acknowledged, they had to acknowledge that what they had, the decisions that they had made had led to where they were and so again in France was reinstituted the necessity of faith in God's word as the foundation of virtue and morality after that period and what happened actually after that period? It's interesting to note that shortly after 1797 the French Revolution, the end of the French Revolution was really a time of booming when it comes to the word of God. Uh, the next year was 1798, which was the, the year that also um, the papacy, um, the unity between church and state was abolished, and which also marks our date from our studies in the book of Daniel for the beginning of the time of the end, or the beginning that the book of Daniel would be unsealed. You will remember that. And so um, from this time onward, the word of God has been spread, and of course we have through various um, ways, the truth has been able to circle the globe. Um, it was in 1804 that the British Bible Society was started, and then 1816 you have the American uh, Bible Society, and of course you have the printing uh, presses that were now uh, publishing the Bibles in the local languages of people, and so the Word of God was, 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 was just being made accessible more and more and more. It's like the prophecy, how the two witnesses are raising up, and everyone can see them. Great, great joy, of course, followed. 
Now, when, you, when we uh, look at this entire story there in Revelation chapter uh, 11, the story of the two witnesses, it really reminds us of this encounter that Jesus had with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, that story that you find in the Gospels. Now, you know, the, the, the two witnesses are not in and of themselves Moses and Elijah, but Moses and Elijah are types of the two witnesses. Just like Moses was referred to as the law and Elijah was one of the prophets. And so you have the law and the prophets. And many times when Jesus referred to the scriptures, he would refer to the law and the prophets. So in many ways, Moses and Elijah are types of the word of God. They met there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you will maybe remember that there were three uh, disciples that were chosen to be there on that scene. Those three disciples were Peter, James, and John. Those were three, those were three disciples that were selected to be present there. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 1 it says, And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Some people have been very puzzled by that verse because Jesus says 2,000 years ago, he says to his disciples, some are standing here that will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God coming with great power. Now, how could he say that? Because everyone that was living at that time has certainly died now. Well, the very experience that you read about right after that, as you continue to read in that chapter, is the experience of the Mount of Transfiguration. And it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, those three disciples, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves and was transfigured before them. So the transfiguration of Jesus on that mount was really in many ways a type of his coming in the end of time because Peter, James, and John, they were standing there when those words were spoken and they were witnessing Jesus on the mount, transfigured. He became glorious. He looked like a king of kings and lord of lords. And what was going on there was really a miniature picture of what will happen when Jesus Christ comes the second time. When Jesus Christ comes the second time, there will be those that will be resurrected like Moses and there will be those that will be translated like Elijah. So they're really types, not only of the Word of God, but types of the two uh, groups of people that will exist in uh, the last days when Jesus comes. It tells us there in Mark chapter 9 and verse 8, His clothes became shining, exceeding white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So He appeared in great glory. Second Peter chapter 1, this is the only place outside of the Gospels where one of those that was present there on that mountain refers back to the event, and this is Peter. Peter is the only one that ever talks about that event after it happened, and he talks about it in this way. Listen to this scripture. For we did not, this is Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 18, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, in other words, when we're teaching to you about Christ's coming, this is no fable, this is not something that we've made up. But how can, people must have asked Peter, well, how can we be sure that you're not making it up? Well, he, he goes on, listen to his evidence of why. He says, but we were eyewitness of his majesty. How can you be an eyewitness of the coming of Jesus when he has not yet come? Well, they, he goes on to say, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is referring back to the event when he was on the holy mountain. Jesus was transfigured before him and the voice was heard from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this very event, Peter uses as an argument that they can be sure that Jesus is going to come because he witnessed it. That event on the Mount of Transfiguration is a type of the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes again, he will be coming in all his glory. And Moses and Elijah are really representations of those that are going to be resurrected and those that are going to be translated at the coming of Jesus. There's another interesting aspect that I want to add to this, and that is that when you look at this incredible account, we also read in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, Peter says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. One day is for the Lord a thousand years. Right there in the book of Mark, it told us right before they went up on that Mount of Transfiguration, they waited for a period of six days and then they walked up that mountain. One day is for the Lord a thousand years. According to biblical chronology, we are about a thousand years from creation. And could it be that we are coming very close, 6,000 years, sorry, 6,000 years from creation? Could it be that we're coming very close to that time of deliverance? Now, we do not have a day. We do not have an hour. And Jesus warned us, and he says, no one knows the day or the hour. But we do know, my friends, that we are coming very near, very close to the final deliverance and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And God wants us, wants you and me, to experience a mountaintop experience. For us to be able to open the Word of God and see what God has in store for our lives. We're living in a world that is chained in sin. And yet, the deliverance of Christ is very near. But even now, Jesus wants to give us a deliverance as we come to Him and come to His Word, the two witnesses, which are to strengthen us and enable us to understand both the past, the present, and the future. Isn't that incredible? Some of us, you know, um, there are historians that know about the past. There are journalists that record about the present, but there are prophets that record about the future. And the Bible, it leads us from the history to the present to the future. We have it all right there. Now, with this in mind, this experience that God wants to give to us through His Word, I want to look at Revelation chapter 12, because Revelation chapter 11 shows us a picture of the French Revolution, which we, of course, uh, is history for us. Revelation chapter 12 is also partly history, but partly the very days in which we're living, especially when you come to the very end of Revelation chapter 12, you come to the very time in which we are living. And I believe that the teachings that we've looked at in Revelation chapter, chapter 11 regarding the two witnesses are going to be the key to overcome in the final struggle of earth's history. Because if we can find out what it is that caused the faithful of the past to stand for truth, then that's going to be the same thing that is going to enable us to stand for truth in the last days.
And we see over and over again that it is the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. It was not Elijah that had power to stop uh, the rain from falling. It was not Moses that had the power to change water into blood. It was not the martyrs during the Dark Ages that had the power to stand up for truth even though their lives were threatened. It is only the word of God that is working through these individuals and enabling them. And so it is for you and for me. And so as we turn our attention to the book of Revelation and chapter 12, in the light of Revelation chapter 11 and what we have learned, this, this, this prophecy, I believe this, this prophecy of Revelation 12 is going to make a lot of sense to us. Listen to what it says as it describes, again, the symbolic language of this incredible vision that John beholds. It says in verse 1, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. So now John is not beholding uh, two witnesses clothed in sackcloth, but he's beholding a woman in Bible prophecy, a woman standing arrayed with the sun, stars upon her head, and standing upon the moon. And look at the further description here. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads, and his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born." She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there. And here, here comes the time period again, 1,260 days, the time period that we also encounter in Revelation chapter 11. Now, what a picture indeed. Again, it's a picture that begins with, as we are, are seeing here, it is around the same period that we're dealing with in Revelation, that we dealt with in Revelation chapter 11. Now, the Word of God was in sackcloth in Revelation chapter 11. The Word of God was in a state of mourning during the 1260 years because of papal oppression. The traditions of man being lifted above the Word of God. Now, when the Word of God is in sorrow... It's not really that, you know, the Word of God itself is, is of course, it's, it's living, but really we're talking here about a book. We're talking about scriptures. Really what we're talking about here is also a people that are in sorrow. What kind of people? A people that have um, determined that the Word of God is the course of their lives. A people that have made the Word of God the direction of their lives, that are using the Word of God as a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. So Revelation chapter 12 is dealing with the people of God, the movement of God, or the church of God. Now, the picture that we encounter is a woman that is arrayed with the sun, with stars on her, on her head, and standing on the moon. What, does this what, is, what is this a representation of? Well, again, we compare Scripture with Scripture. And the Bible tells us, and actually you can find this all the way through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that the woman is a symbol of the church or the people of God, just like the bride is waiting for the bride or the bridegroom and the bride are about to meet, the bridegroom being Jesus Christ and the bride being the church or the movements of God. Take notice of how Paul addresses the church of Corinthians. 
the Corinthian church. And he says the following in his letter. He writes the following in his letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the church is like the woman, the beautiful woman, the beautiful bride that is waiting for Jesus, the bridegroom. And so this beautiful picture you can find all throughout Scripture. And uh, it's really a picture that comes particularly in, in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, you will find two women, two women. One being the true church of God here in Revelation chapter 12. And another one that we're going to study um, in, in a future presentation, in one of our last presentations, that represents a corrupt or a false church. Now, this one in Revelation chapter 12 holds on to the truth. She is clothed with the sun. She is clothed with the light that comes from God. And where do you think that light comes from? It's the word of God. It's the word of God. It's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God is the primal drive of this church, this movement. Now, when you go, of course, and you look at... Um, the prophecy there in Revelation chapter 12, it talks about the promised or the woman that would give birth to a man-child. And of course, the promise was given right after the fall of man in sin. When they fell into sin, the promise was given that out of the woman, a seed would come that would crush the head of the serpent. That's the first prophecy of the Messiah that was given all the way back in the book of Genesis. Of course, that came to pass in the life of Christ. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The first promise in Scripture of a coming Messiah. Well, when Jesus was born, and he became, he was that promised seed, and he died in behalf of us, we know that the very head of the serpent was crushed the victory was won. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Now to Abram and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. He was the promised seed. He was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now in Revelation chapter 12, it says, She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. We will remember that after Jesus finished his ministry here on earth, he was caught up to God and to his throne. So Revelation chapter 12, what is it doing? It's giving us a picture of events regarding the people of God and what happened with the people of God and what happened to Jesus. Jesus, he became a man, he fulfilled the promises, and he accomplished his task here on earth. He died in behalf of us. He ascended to heaven. Now all wrath is turned to God's people. Revelation chapter 12 is picturing this, this battle between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. And now that the devil cannot do anything to Jesus anymore, he's now ascended to heaven, his anger is turned towards those that follow Christ and those that have the two witnesses, those that have the word of God. And so it says in verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. During the time of papal oppression, God's people were found in remote areas of Europe 
places where they could live in peace, and even many times they, these areas were invaded by papal armies, but in relative, where they could live in relative peaceness and where they also could live according to the dictates of their conscience as they sought to keep, an, uh, to, keep to the scriptures and the word of God and live their lives according to God's word. And so during this dark, dark period, the church is in the wilderness. And as I mentioned earlier, I had the privilege uh, last year of visiting some of these areas um, like the Waldensi Valleys, the Waldensi Mountains in northern Italy. Absolutely incredible history of uh, what happened to those people as they sought to carry the truth um, into other dark parts of Europe as they would uh, even take the parts of the scripture and they would sew it into their clothing and they would travel as merchantmen and then as they came in contact with people and they could trust the person, they would take out the scriptures and share with them. Incredible history of, these, of the church in the wilderness. And you can, there's a lot of uh, good material that is written and, and a Amazing Discoveries has a lot of good material on, 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 on if you want to learn more about this period of the church in the wilderness. Absolutely incredible to see um, how God was leading his people at such a period of great darkness. Well, the prophecy continues in Revelation chapter 12 and take notice as the prophecy takes a little bit of a shift here and it brings us back to the very um, outbreak of this battle way, way, way back in time. You can take Revelation 12 and you can basically divide it into three parts. The first part is dealing with uh, what we just read about the, uh, the woman and the promised seed, Christ, and then the persecution of the church during the Dark Ages. The second part brings us, actually, it's not really chronological, but the second part brings us all the way back to the beginning of the battle in heaven. And then the last part deals with the battle even uh, in the days in which we're living. But let, let us look at the second part here, verse 7 to 12, and take notice of this great battle that began in heaven. We looked at this, by the way, in our very first presentation um, on the book of Daniel. We also read this verse. If some of you were here, you will remember that. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, and they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. Listen to the language here. He was cast out, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Three times we have the expression, cast out, cast out, cast out. Hold on to that expression, as we will come back to that in just a moment. Then it says, Then I heard a voice, a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. There you have the expression again, a fourth time. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So there's a great battle going on in heaven that happened long, 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 long time, even before this world was created. And Lucifer, which is that being, that angel, we talked about this earlier, that rebelled against his maker and became known as the dragon, symbolized as the dragon in scripture, he was cast out. He, he had to leave the immediate presence of God. And yet, when did it happen that he was fully cast out? When was he fully defeated? 
That happened, of course, at the cross of Calvary when Jesus paid the price. As a matter of fact, look at this interesting verse found in the book of John. In the book of John, there's a verse that talks about, um, uh, that, that uses the very same language as Revelation 12. Revelation 12, we saw four times it was mentioned that Satan was cast out. Now, in the book of John chapter 12, and this is easy to remember, Revelation chapter 12, John chapter 12. John chapter 12, which is a gospel written by John, the same writer of the book of Revelation, he wrote the following in verse 31 to 33. He said, now, that's also a word that we found in, in, in Revelation 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, and this is Jesus speaking, I and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Now, isn't that interesting language? Very similar. Jesus here, talking about his death, says, when I will be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And when I be lifted up, the prince of this world, the ruler of this world, Satan will be cast out. He was fully, his arguments were fully cast down when Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. He, 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 he defeated every argument of the devil on the cross. Now, the devil continues to be enraged and yet he only knows that his time is short. And so he is enraged towards those that are following Jesus Christ, those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Revelation 12, verse 11, and the title of our message here tonight is Revelation's Two Witnesses and the Key to Overcome. Revelation's Two Witnesses, the Word of God. What is the key to overcome? Revelation 12, verse 11 tells us. And they overcame him by what? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So the key to overcome is for us to have the two witnesses, the word of God, and to put our faith in the Lamb, in Jesus that is represented in the word of God, and then our testimony will correspond to that commitment and that uh, decision that we make in our hearts and in our lives, because our testimony will be a testimony of faith. Our testimony will be a testimony that God can do in us what we cannot do for ourselves that he can give us victory, that he can lead us to be overcomers. The key to overcome, my friends, is Jesus Christ and the blood that he spilt for us, the power that is in the death of Jesus and the power that we find in the word of God. Well, let's go to the last part of Revelation chapter 12 before we close here because now we're getting closer and closer to the end of the battle, closer and closer to the end of the conflict. And take notice of the last verses in Revelation chapter 12. The Bible says, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he understands that the battle is lost for him, and yet he's not ready to give up yet. It says, he persecuted the woman, the woman being the church of God, who gave birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. And here we have a repetition of what happened in the past. It says, where she is nourished for a time, times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. That's the same period as the 1260. So we're reading here about she's, she's been taken care of during this period. So the serpent spewed out water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, but he, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood 
But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. God is providing each and every time a place for his people. He's providing safety for his people. He provided safety for his people during the 1260. Yes, many lost their lives. But if you read about the stories, it's incredible. Even when they were led to the stake and they were put on fire, you could hear them singing hymns to God. It's almost like God took away the pain at that moment and allowed them to rest in peace. And those uh, times that God delivered them in miraculous ways as the armies of, of Rome would march into the Waldensi Valleys, supernatural things would happen and God's people would be protected. God has his hand upon his people. It is, we see the evidence in the past and also we know that whatever time of trouble is going to come in the future, we can know that God is by our side and that God is a God that... that, that um, it's like the word of God, it's like, it's like the prophecy says, we are the apple of his eye. It's like the prophecy said, uh, the church was given wings, of, wings like an eagle to fly to a place of rest. And that's what God wants to do for his people today. Now take notice of the last verse of Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Here, we, here is described the final conflict. If we would trace ourselves in Revelation chapter 12, this is where we are at right now. It says, and the dragon, that's Satan, was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, the remnant, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The dragon is filled with wrath and he knows that, that he's defeated. He knows that he has a short time. And yet now his, intense, his intensity of, 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 of anger is turned towards those that are faithful to God. And yet they are in God's hands. We need not be afraid. God has promised that when we put our faith in him, that he is going to shelter us with his angels. Like the Psalm 91 says, that we will walk in the shadow of the Almighty. In the shadow of the Almighty. There is a war that is being raged, and that is a war against those that have the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is the key to overcome? It's having the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The commandments of God that we cannot keep in our own power and our own strength, but by the blood of Jesus. And by the word of God, those commandments will be written in our hearts and in our minds. That's the new covenant that God wants to establish with us. So that we can walk in his path and that we can have the testimony of Jesus and that that may become our testimony. And so it's my prayer tonight that as we've looked at Revelation's two witnesses and the key to overcome, that you have seen tonight that that key to overcome is found in God's word. That key to overcome is the light and the lamp. And that key to overcome is the person of Jesus Christ that is on display in the two witnesses. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that enables us to be overcomers so that he can write his commandments in our hearts and in our minds. So that we can be that people that will put on display his character in a time when the word of God is covered up by human opinion and tradition. My friends, in many ways we're facing a time similar to that of the French Revolution. And we're already seeing it around us where nations are becoming more and more secular. And yet at this time, God wants to use you, he wants to use me to hold, hold forth the torch of truth. And I pray that you will do just that. Let us um, close this presentation with a word of prayer as we ask the Lord to empower us to put the two witnesses on display in our lives. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word tonight. We want to thank you for 
being with us and for giving us insights into these incredible prophecies of revelation. Lord, we pray that as we study the two witnesses, as we study your word, that that light and that lamp may be kindled in us, that we will be able to be a torch of truth in a world of darkness, that, Lord, you will help us to be part of a new reformation, a new revival that leads to godliness, that leads to uh, a new discovery of truth in a time of compromise and in a time of human tradition and human opinions. Lord, thank you that we can turn back to your word at such a time as this. Thank you that we can commit our hearts to you, and we pray that you will work in us that which we cannot do in our own strength. And we thank you for the promise that you've given us. For this we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.